0: all of the religions are pretty much answering five, I call them the five universal questions. They don't all prioritize these questions in the same way, but they all eventually deal with these questions.
1: Welcome to Intersections, where we navigate the crossroads of ideas, mapping the contours of knowledge and belief through the stories and lives of influential voices. On each episode, We visit with notable individuals in various fields who are asking important questions and whose experiences and perspectives challenge us to pursue lives of meaning and purpose. A few years ago my wife and I lived in Cambodia. As we would walk the streets of Phnom Penh, we were quite curious about many of the temples and Buddhist rituals we observed. While we wanted to understand how our Cambodian friends saw the world and found meaning in their lives, their Buddhist worldview was so completely foreign to us with our Western assumptions. All of the world's great religions can create a dizzying array of ways of perceiving the reality around us. But what are some of the questions that all faiths seek to answer? What are their similarities and their differences? On this episode of Intersections, we feature Professor Lori Schlepfer, an adjunct professor of world religions at Western Seminary in California, where she has taught since 2001. Professor Schlepfer has a master's degree in theology and is part of the Interfaith Speakers Bureau for the Islamic Network Group of San Jose. She's also a faculty member for the Diversity and Inclusion Program at the University of California at Santa Cruz. What got you interested in world religions? Where did that come from?
0: It was when I was a mom with some little kids and a woman moved in across the street from me who was of a different faith. And I realized that I knew absolutely nothing about her faith, Um, maybe some little things, or I thought I knew some things. And I realized we were going to be friends. Our children were the same age. They were going to be playing together. And I thought, I really want to learn about what she believes and how she sees the world. So um, I started by just talking to her and getting some questions, but I also wanted to read some of the writings from her, um, from her religion. And so I actually picked up some books and started reading and found it very interesting. I wanted to read with an open mind, um, which is a little scary thing to do when you've been brought up in one particular faith. So that was really the start of my journey, um, learning a lot about her faith, asking a lot. We had a lot of great conversations about our different perspectives on things. And after that, I thought, wow, there's a lot of other religions out there that I actually know nothing about. And so that just started me on a journey. I just started hitting libraries and bookstores, picking up books and started learning about all the other world religions, trying to read from their own perspectives. What I really surprised me was how deep some of the writers are profound. Um, they have storied histories. They have amazing uh, people who have practiced those different religions. And uh, so that really challenged me um, in my own faith, and I loved it, but it also was very challenging. There's a lot of theories about where religion comes from. You have people like um, Jung and even Freud, who said, well, it, it's very subjective. It's coming from something from within our, our cells in our DNA somehow um, or it's very subjective there's no objective reality reality to religion it's all coming from within you have sort of an evolutionary perspective that gradually as we evolved we realized we were that the world was a dangerous place and we sort of invented gods to look after us or that we could perhaps get something from some sort of safety or crops There's actually really interesting theories about original monotheism. Wilhelm Schmidt, um, in the I think it was the early 1900s, did a lot of research, finding that there were at least remnants of, of original monotheism in many um, cultures. So there's a lot of diversity of opinion about where religion comes from. The world is a very religious place and always has been. I actually um, ran into someone once who is a PhD in anthropology. And I said, I want to ask you a question. Have, have they ever found a culture anywhere that was not religious? Either an ancient culture that you're finding the remnants of or some tribe that you didn't know existed that did not have religion. And she said, no, mm-hmm. that it is one of the defining characteristics of human beings um, historically is that they have always been, as far as we can go back, religious Mm. you know so that was really interesting to me that it's something in us Um, whether it's our brain there's interesting research about our brains being wired for faith Um, Mm. I don't know where that will lead but it's interesting Mm. but there's something within us that perhaps perceives the spiritual that longs for the divine Mm. something within us Mm. that makes us human really interested in how real people practice these faiths just kind of everyday faith of a Buddhist of a Hindu of a Christian of a Muslim how do they actually practice it how do they understand it so um, because you do have sort of the official versions that might be in books and then you have how real people actually practice so I, I really do like that and I have had to sort of focus I mean there's so many religions in the world, there's no way I don't think one person can know them all. So I've sort of focused on, in terms of population in our world, the, the five biggest religions, which are Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and then fifth would be either Judaism or Sikhism are, are the top. And I've hmm. kind of looked at a few others, but I've really had to sort of focus on those those big populations. One thing that really um, was important in my approach to studying the religions was learning that within every religion, there is huge diversity. Um, You cannot say this is exactly what a Hindu believes or a Buddhist believes, because it's just not that cut and dried. Uh, Tremendous amount of diversity. So um, that, I I guess it shouldn't have surprised me, but it it sort of did because The way I had learned basically about these religions is, oh, they believe X, Y, Z, and that's it. But there's really a tremendous amount of diversity. All of the religions are pretty much answering five, I call them the five universal questions. They don't all prioritize these questions in the same way, but they all eventually deal with these questions. The first one is, what is of ultimate foundational reality what is ultimately real what is the most ultimate thing in the universe so is that God and if so can we know what this God is like and if it's not God then what is the most ultimate thing in the universe so the question about ultimate reality second question is what is a human being who are we what are we what is life's purpose and meaning, or does it have a purpose and meaning? What is, what am I, what's a human being? Uh, all the religions discuss that question. The third is, what is the human problem? All the religions recognize that there's something not quite right with human beings. <laughs> we tend to have a lot of problems. What is, but what is the core problem that that is at the base of all the problems we seem to have as human beings? What is the problem, and then what is the solution? Fourth is what is the way to live? So this is the question about morals and ethics and values. What is a moral life? What is moral or immoral behavior? How should we live? What should we value? And then the fifth question is, what is really my destiny, our destiny as a human race, but also what is my destiny? What happens when I die? All the religions are going to get to that question as well. Some of them don't care too much about that question. Some care a great deal about that, but all of the religions are gonna deal with with these five questions. I grew up in an Abrahamic tradition which means that God, uh, as defined in the Bible, uh, is the ultimately real thing. He was and is and is to come. He is the creator of all things. So everything that we see has is temporary or has impermanence to it, hasn't been around, but God is the foundational reality. So you see that in um Judaism, to some degree, again, I'm going to always say there, but there's diversity on that question. Um, And certainly in Islam would say, yes, God is the ultimate reality. But then you move to the Eastern religions, and things aren't quite that cut and dried. And Buddhism does not accept the idea of a creator God, because their foundational reality is really um, the interconnectedness of all things. Um, They would see sort of a an eternal past to phenomena that that are that's in our world. Um, it's been going on forever, and there isn't. The, so, the, really, what's ultimate is um, the the interconnectedness. They call it pratityasamutpada. It's mm-hmm. it's a kind of a technical world, but it just means that everything is connected um, in causation to other things. Then in Hinduism again, there's many schools of Hinduism. Some of them are actually sort of monotheistic, but many are also more uh, panentheistic or pantheistic. And this is the idea that um, the ultimate reality is something they call Brahman, which you can't really define. You can't call it God in the Christian sense, but it's this um, this yeah this ultimate reality that is beyond all dualities. Uh, it's sometimes called a universal spirit and everything is that universal spirit. So in that sense, really everything is the ultimate reality. So they really come at that question, these religions quite differently. In Hinduism, you do have creation stories, but they are more about About Brahman's Brahman manifesting himself because it is the world, and so Mm. the creation stories are about why do we have dualities when Brahman is is beyond dualities? Well, there is so there is a kind of a creation story, but creation comes has happened many many times. It kind of comes and goes. Mm. Really, it's in Hinduism you have much more of a a cyclical view of time, whereas in the Abrahamic traditions we tend to see time as linear. So uh, that's very different. Brahman is something that is not definable. It is beyond all of the categories that we have. So we might ask, is Brahman personal or impersonal? And they would wanna go beyond those kind of categories even. In Hinduism, you have a Brahman without qualities, without any descriptors. You just can't, there's no language we have that can describe what this Brahman is. Brahman will manifest in ways that are tangible. All the gods and goddesses of Hinduism, for instance, can be considered manifestations of Brahman, but they are not Brahman. In the Abrahamic traditions, we have this idea that um, human beings are created by God. It doesn't mean that, that necessarily all Christians or all Jewish people or even all Muslims will reject the concept of evolution. But ultimately, at some point along the way, there was something special that God did. And uh, so, so human beings are, they have in the Jewish and Christian tradition, we use the term the imago Dei, which is the image of God. We were endowed with very special capabilities. We think rationally, we have conceptual thought, we have language abilities that no other animal has. And also in that is the ability to relate to the divine in a way that no other animal has. And also, I think kind of the the longing for the divine, that's all part of the image of God. Really, a human being is endowed by the Creator with all of these these uh, really reflections of many of God's own character. When you look at the Eastern traditions, uh, Buddhism in particular would say, we are very mistaken about what we think we are. We think we are some kind of enduring self that can perhaps live into eternity as ourselves and they mm. would say that is really an a delusion mm. there is no self according to buddhist teaching a human being is a temporary collection uh, that they uh, they call it's literally a bundle of of things that come together there's a physical body there's mm. sensation there's um, perception, various things that come together, and when those are all together with all the, the causations that brought that into being, there is a human being, and so we can use this term "I," but we have to realize that's kind of a useful fiction. <laughs> so, mm. There really is no "I."
1: Mm.
0: We function sometimes like there is, but that's part of a, but that's part of our problem actually. When we get to the human problem, is thinking that I am really a self ultimately. For Hinduism, again, it depends on what school of Hinduism that you're looking at, but a very common idea would be that we are ultimately the same as Brahman, that Mm -hmm. ultimate reality of the universe or this universal soul. Uh, But it's very, we don't really realize it because our, our Atman, our soul is encrusted with a lot of karma that we've built up over many many past lives so it's hard for us to really know who we are Mm. and part of our job as a human being is to get rid of the karmic load so that we can perceive more clearly that we are the same as everything else in the world we are ultimately the same essence Mm -hmm. as that ultimate reality The Abrahamic faiths wouldn't want to go to that place that we are somehow the same as God. There's a definite, definite separation. He is God. We are creation. There's a separation there. Uh, there's a transcendence to God. Whereas in Hinduism, um, you you have um, much more of a yeah a pan pantheism that God is in everything, including you. You and there's a sense in which you are God. In Judaism you find very wide variety of perspective on what we even mean by the word God. And and there are many Jews who say we, we're not even gonna go into trying to defining what we mean by that. You can define it however you'd like. In the in Christianity, the problem is that we are separated from God. By what is called sin, and sin is missing the mark of who we were designed to be. We sort of rebel against God. Um, He says that He will define good and evil for us, and we like to go. Well, we'll just go ahead and do that for ourselves. You know, Uh, we rebel against God, and so that separates us from God. And so that is our that is our problem: is that we are in rebellion against God and separated from Him. And but for uh and we're really all born with that um whether there's an uh, a sin nature that we all are born with but ultimately none of us gets through life without doing things that are wrong and so we all are falling short of god god's high standards for us so that's our problem. In Islam, Islam believes that every human being is born with a clean slate. There's no sin nature, but we all have a very strong tendency to stray from Allah. And so, whereas in Christianity, we uh, Christianity teaches that God needed to rescue us. That there actually was nothing we could do uh, to save ourselves, you know. Mm-hmm. But that a rescue had to come from without. From without, and it came from God Himself in Jesus. But in Islam, Islam teaches that um, what human beings need are guide. They need guidance, and so God sends messengers, prophets, and God sends scriptures to guide people in how they should live. And that human beings, uh, while they do make mistakes, God's very forgiving. But ultimately, our problem would be solved if we would actually just follow God's guidance on how we should live. So we need guidance. We don't really need salvation the way Christian Christianity would see it. It's a little more complicated with Judaism as to what exactly the human problem is. Uh, but I would say, basically, it's the idea that we we have a tendency to live very self-centered lives and we need to learn um, to do things to repair the earth to repair human relationships we need to kind of get with get with that program Uh, again it really depends on um, Judaism is a hard one because it's it's so incredibly diverse but I would say that in general would be the idea is that um, yeah we have some Jews would say oh yes we absolutely sin and we need to make amends Yom Kippur which is a day where many Jews will will pray and ask for forgiveness from God but also go to their to people in their family or whatever and ask for forgiveness so we need to make amends with each other and we need forgiveness from God which he grants I'm reading in Hinduism, I see the word sin. But when you see the word sin in some of those writings, you have to realize that um, it's same vocabulary, different dictionary. (laughs) Mm. Um, They're not using sin in the same way that you would use it in the Christian tradition. So in Hinduism, the problem is, um, we don't really know that we are ultimately Brahman, you know, we've lost a sense of who we are. Um, and, And our problem is that we've collected this karma through our bad actions. Every action we do produces something for good or for bad, whether it's good action or bad action. And we accumulate, when we do bad things, we accumulate karma. And the more karma we have, the more it's difficult to really see who we are you know, that this Atman within us is the same essence of the whole universe, of this universal spirit. Mm. And so the, the solution in Hinduism, then, there's many different paths that you can take. You can do um, a path of karma, of, of works, where you're really trying to abide by various rules and traditions and so forth, and trying to be um, as faithful to those as possible, there's philosoph- a, a more philosophical path that you can take with a lot of meditation, where you're you're really um, trying to. They call it self-realization. Uh, you where Westerners tend to think of, of realization as like a, a rational thing. We're like, oh, now I realize. <laughs> no, <laughs> so but in Hinduism, realization is coming at a much deeper level. It's mm. a mystic, really a mystical experience. Mm when you realize that you are God. So it takes a lot, tremendous amount of practice. You need to have someone who can teach you how to do the practices and so forth. So you have various paths um, that you could take. The other path is something called bhakti, which is a path of loving devotion, uh, following a particular God or goddess and being very devoted, giving yourself in various ways for the love of the God or goddess. It's very popular in India. Um, to be very devoted to these various deities and that can help with your karmic load as well. Um, Sometimes they'll go on pilgrimages. There's a very famous pilgrimage with, I think the last one they said there was like 70 million people came. It's one of the biggest gatherings. I think it is the biggest gathering on planet earth. these religions have sacred scriptures that do a lot of teaching about how we should live and why we should live in various ways, what the benefit is. So I would say it, it is at the level of, of these morals and values and moral obligations that we find a lot of similarities that, that cross between the religions. Um, most of these religions, I would say all of them, have a uh, discussions about treating people justly kindly not all the religions use the word love so much buddhism doesn't use the word love it tends to use the word compassion but to have compassion on people to love people to um be fair you know those kind of things really cross across these these different religions um but there's there's very distinct things within the religions that become very important um so, for instance, in Islam, the uh, the way to live is to be submissive to God and God's law that He has set down for humans to live by. It's called the Sharia. People get all upset about the word Sharia, but it just means the straight path to the waterhole. You know, <laughs> it's the it's the straight and narrow path which to live. And most of the Sharia is concerned with how to fulfill your religious obligations of praying five times a day or going on pilgrimage or fasting and that sort of thing. So those things are very, very important in Islam. That is very much about how they should live. But there's also things in there about how you do treat uh, other people. Um, There's all of these religions obviously would say things like murder is wrong. (laughs) Um, But they would all perhaps disagree about when... It's okay. You know, when is when is there a time when when it's necessary? In Hinduism, you have a whole group of people um, of Arna, a caste, if you will, that's called the Kshatriyas that are the warrior caste. So to be to go to war at times in Hinduism, uh, absolutely was something just to do. Um, in, in Buddhism, you, you tend to have uh, this concept of, uh, of ahimsa, you have that in, in Hinduism as well, but it means non-harming so that you try your best not to harm not just other people but other creatures as well a lot of times uh, in buddhism and hinduism you find a lot of vegetarianism because this Mm. they will extend all the way to to all the creatures that we should try our best not to harm them in jainism if you're really going to follow it all the way uh, and be, be a monk or a nun you you want to wear a mask over your face so you don't accidentally breathe in a, an insect mm-hmm. and harm an insect, or you'll mm-hmm. carry around a little whisk broom to make sure you don't sit on an ant or something. They're mm-hmm. very, um, and, and you can find that even in Buddhism. There's a great scene uh, in, I think it's called Seven Years in Tibet, where the character's wanting to build, he's going to build a movie theater for the Dalai Lama. And he, they're starting to clear the ground. And then the monks are all upset because there's all these worms in the ground. Mm. And so he goes to the Dalai Lama and says, what's the deal with worms? Why are the monks so upset that these worms might get harmed? And he laughed, it's, it's a cute scene. He says, well, we have a saying that the worm was once my mother, mm. <laughs> meaning mm. because of this interconnectedness of life and the many lives that you live, at one time the, the energy that's in that worm might've been your mother mm. in some other distant past. So you, you treat all creatures mm that way and Mm. so there's this real great scene where they're carefully moving all the worms out of the ground Mm. to another place so that he can um, go ahead and build this building so um, so you do find that uh, in in Buddhism In Christianity, you and in Islam, and I think in Judaism as well, you have concepts of just war that there are times when it's necessary for the greater good. Um, and there, but there's all kinds of criteria mm. for when that's allowed and when it's not allowed um, to to like go to war. But any but but clearly, like in the Bible, it's very clear. Very, it's in the Book of Genesis that to just take the life of another human being, because human beings are made in the image of God, that that is absolutely forbidden to do just wantonly to take another human life. So even entering into war is something that has to be very carefully thought through and Mm -hmm. is this just and so forth. From a Christian perspective, we don't love our neighbor in order to get God's Blessing, or something, in order to receive or to get in his favor. Actually, there's nothing we can do to get in his favor. Um, but by his grace, he has gift us, gifted us with his favor. And so we respond to that love that we see in God by loving like he loves, trying to even love our enemies. Very hard command <laughs> that Jesus gave to love even. Your enemy and ones that are persecuting you, you are to love. So, but the motivation is not, oh, so we can earn brownie points with God. Um, it is in response. Um, in fact, it, in the Christian tradition, if you look at, like, for instance, all the letters of Paul, he always starts with theology about all these great things that God has done for us. And it's only after he establishes all of that that he goes, and therefore, here's how you should live. In response to that, so the motivations can be a little different. I mean, really, in the Eastern traditions, there is this um, concern for your karmic load—that everything you do, that's going to come back to you. It's pretty unforgiving. Uh, karma functions as a natural law of cause and effect, a moral law of cause and effect. So, when you behave badly it's going to come back maybe not in this life but maybe in a future life or you'll be born into a um a a place or situation that is not good and you're gonna have to suffer for quite a long time so so there's there's differences in how what the motivation is for why you do what you do In our Eastern traditions that we're talking about, Buddhism and Hinduism, they believe in rebirth or reincarnation sometimes or transmigration, depending on the tradition, what it's called. And that is basically that when this life is over, there will be another life. Now, in Hinduism, it's very specific. It's you. You have a, a self and it's that self that will be born into another body, another. It could be an animal. It could be a human it uh, could be higher or lower than you are now with better circumstances or worse, but you will be, unless you have achieved that self realization that will allow you to get off what they call the wheel, <laughs> mm. the wheel of birth, death, birth, death, you know, rebirth, death, uh, over and over again. Um, unless you've uh, got to the place where you can get off, you're going to be reborn again. So that is really your destiny um, until you can live such a life and can get rid enough uh, of enough of the karma that you can actually then not be reborn. And there's various descriptions in Hinduism about what that ultimate moksha or salvation is. You do have Hinduism that believes that there will be um, a, a sort of an I-Thou relationship with Brahman, that you will be aware to some degree of self and, and, uh, and the other, this Brahman. But what I find most in the West is is this concept, and it's actually in some of the Hindu scriptures, that we will merge back into Brahman like a drop of water going back into the ocean. So all of those dualities, even of the duality of that I am myself and you are yourself and this is a chair, all of that will be gone. And we all will merge back into the source from which we came. So that's the ultimate destiny. It's not communal it's not like oh i'll be with my friends and family it's not like a heaven it's really a merging into the divine i've heard hindu speakers that have been in my class that say well ultimately everyone will get there hmm. but it just depends on how many lives it's you've amazing. already lived probably thousands of lives and you will probably have many many more to come so it just depends on what you're able to accomplish in this life to kind of move you toward that goal in buddhism these are really difficult concepts for, especially for Westerners, but for for Buddhism, the ultimate destiny, again, they also believe in reincarnation. It's very complicated because, the, because there's no self in Buddhism. It's like, well, then what gets reincarnated, you know? And why should I worry about it? You know, it's not me, who is it? It is another being that will come into being eventually uh, with your karmic force. Whatever hmm. karma you've kind of created will reemerge as a person, potentially, down the line. And Hmm. so there is reincarnation in Buddhism as well. Uh, Eventually, for Buddhists, they also would like to get off the wheel uh, of the uh, the wheel of suffering or of samsara. And so what's there when you get off? It's called the nirvana. It's not a word that's easy to describe. Even in Buddhism, they have a difficult time describing what nirvana actually is. Um, is there a consciousness? Is is it? It'll be totally different than the kind of consciousness we have now, certainly. But um, it's, it's some kind of state that is beyond all dualities and that is not in is not a suffering anymore. So it's it's mm. it's kind of vague. And it, again, different schools will describe it in different ways. There's this, actually a school of Buddhism that talks about going to something called the Pure Land. And that you can go there um, kind of on the merit of a Buddha, and you can be born in this pure land where from there you can learn the deep teachings of of Buddhism, and you don't have to be reborn in this world you're hmm. you're able to stay in this pure land and eventually escape. Hmm. so uh, there's a lot of variety of teaching there uh, about what exactly that is that existence but it the main thing is that it's it's not suffering anymore so it's not really life because one of the principles of buddhism is that all of life is suffering (laughs) it's like number one in the in the noble truths all of life is eventually suffering so it's not really life after death Mm. but there's something Mm. beyond that is a place that it's not a place there's just no suffering it's in a state of no suffering so um And that also takes many, many, if you want to say, lifetimes uh, before you're going to get there. In the Abrahamic traditions, Judaism has never been very focused on life after death. Many Jews do believe that there is a life to come, but that we have been given very little information about it. And the focus should be just on this life right now. We should just be focused on doing what we're called to do in this life. The Abrahamic uh, traditions of Islam and Christianity both teach about uh, uh, being, well, in in, in Islam, it's really going to a place called paradise or to hellfire, hopefully not, but uh, some will go to hellfire and some will go to paradise um, based on strictly on God's judgment. There's no guarantee No matter how you're living your life now, for a Muslim, that because it's strictly, they're they're very concerned with God's will. That He has ultimate sovereignty and will to decide where you're going to go. So there will be a judgment, and you will be assigned either hellfire or paradise. And for Christianity, um, the choice is basically to be with God or to be without God. Sometimes it's called heaven and hell. Um, These have taken on cultural meanings in America that perhaps the scriptures don't really teach, but um, you're either going to be with God forever. Or that's the longing for a Christian is to be with the Lord forever. Um, and, but for, for humans that don't want to be with the Lord, they're never forced to be with the Lord. And so they will be without the Lord. And that is called hell. So that's destiny that there's just one time around in for for the most part in the Abrahamic traditions, you, occasionally we'll hear some reincarnation talk in Judaism, but for the most part, you get one trip around and then and then God makes His judgment. From my Christian tradition that I come from, it is accepting a gift that God has given, that He has provided forgiveness of sins through Jesus, who paid for them all for us, and is setting about a renewal of the earth and of human beings and if you want to be a part of it, come, you know, come and drink, it says. So for Christianity, it's not like, oh, well, if I don't go to church every Sunday, I might not get to heaven. I mean, colloquially, yeah, there's probably a lot of Christians that, that go to church because they think that, but that's not really at all what Christianity teaches. It teaches that everything that we receive is all a gift from God. It's his, it's his graciousness and his mercy upon us. Our job is to receive that. Just like if I give you a, a birthday present, you can throw it in the trash or you can open it and go, wow, this is a great birthday present and I'm going to use this every day. Christianity has three big branches to its tree. There's Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant, and, and they're going to see some of these things slightly differently about what you need to do, so to speak. But the, the branch that I sit on, on the Protestant branch, it's it's all a gift from God. It's just a matter of receiving it and letting then God change your heart reorient your heart toward him and the things he cares about in this world and start acting out in that in in those ways that are are um lead to human flourishing for yourself and for others are those who think that religion is the primary human problem and that if we could just get rid of it all would be well let's just get rid of all religion because violence has been done in the name of religion if we could just get rid of all religion yeah yeah then we're we're, we're going to be good we're going to be really moving on toward our uh this golden day but that is really ignoring the fact that the bloodiest century in all human history was the 20th century human beings are ex- exquisitely capable and skilled at harnessing whatever religion or whatever they would like to for their own purposes. And when I think when religion becomes a power structure, and I think you have seen this from time immemorial, when religion becomes a power structure is when it is so vulnerable to human beings harnessing it for their own pur- selfish purposes. And then it becomes a, I mean and by all categories, a force for evil, which is so sad. Um, But it also has incredible power to do good in the world. I try very hard to get a representative in of every religion so that they can hear it from some, from someone who that is their heart language, that faith, the way they practice it. That's sort of my approach. I don't want a Buddhist to be sitting in my class and going, I don't even recognize that religion. I really try. I do a lot of quoting from re- religious writings and just let the religion speak. And we can get into some interesting conversations about various aspects and do, how do they hold up and you know maybe what a critique of those things. But I try to not only let the religion speak for themselves, but I actually bring in religious people of those various faith traditions and let them speak. Because until you hear a religion explained from the heart of somebody who really believes it and practices it, you really haven't understood it.
1: Lori Schlepfer is an adjunct professor of World Religions at Western Seminary in California, where she has taught since 2001. Professor Schlepfer has a master's degree in theology and is part of the Interfaith Speakers Bureau for the Islamic Network Group of San Jose. She is also a faculty member for the Diversity and Inclusion Program at the University of California at Santa Cruz. Thank you for listening to this episode of Intersections. To subscribe, click follow in your podcast app and make sure to leave a review. All archived podcasts and information about our guests can be found on our website, intersectionspodcast.org. On our website, you can also listen to Faith Matters radio conversations featuring panels of spiritual leaders discussing how their faith traditions approach a variety of topics. You can contact Intersections by emailing info at intersectionspodcast.org. I'm Seth Shapiro, and join us on our next episode, where we will continue exploring the crossroads of ideas on Intersections.